right. Well, if you have children and you want to send them back, you can. If you want to keep them with you, that's still okay. Um, I also want to encourage you guys who come week after week. You know, these altars are always open. You don't have to stay in your pew. If you want to worship God here up front, you can. If you want to just come and lay on your face, you can. Um, we also have communion up here on both sides. So if you feel like you want to come up here and grab communion and go back to your seat or up here or whatever, you can do that with you and the Lord at any time you want. And uh, we've had a lot of people in this church healed just from taking communion uh, in the presence of the Lord, physically healed. Um, we never know when it's going to happen, but uh, it's not going to hurt to keep trying, all right? So uh, you're welcome to do that, and that's just something we always forget to announce. But these, these altars are open, and you're welcome to, to um, come up here and be with the Lord and, and worship up here or sing and dance and clap or, or whatever you want to do. So, amen? amen. I'm glad everybody's here. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're um, with the Lord. I hope he touched you this morning, and I um, hope you got a, a um, glimpse of his presence. And I hope you're refreshed. But I want to carry on with where we're at. If you weren't here last week, we're going to be jumping in again midstream because we're in a series on Ephesians. How many of you guys were here last week? Did uh, that help you at all? Um, how many of you had never seen that in that first six verses? <laughs> so there's so much of the Word of God we read and miss. Um, I, I challenge you to slow down when you're reading the Lord's Word, and I challenge you to... Um, stop when the Holy Spirit presses you. What's that mean? You know, when you read something and it jumps out, and you're like, "What? I wonder what that really means. And then begin to read it in different translations and begin to just meditate on it and just ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to just be, you know, what are you saying here? But the greatest advice I can give you on studying the Word of God, which the church absolutely needs more of, is to look at it in context. Take the entire book that you're reading Find the mind of the man who wrote it under the influence of the Spirit and begin to see the end game that he's going for. Because if you bust all these little verses up and contextualize them only to themselves, you're going to come up with some sort of randomized theology. But Paul was very specific in how he was writing Ephesians in every book he wrote. So it's important we find his mindset, his, his intention, and begin to walk that direction. So contextually speaking, the next few weeks we're going to be going through these chapters, ending in chapter 6. This is the chapter everybody wants to get to. This is the chapter that most of the church talks about. This is the chapter everybody gets romanticized in with the, with the gospel. We have this power trip that we want to usurp over the devil and tell him to get out of our life whenever it's convenient. Right? Like when he's not messing with us and we like to like flirt with the, with the outskirts of his camp, we will do that. But as soon as we tippy-toe over that line and then want to pull back, we want to tell him to leave us alone whenever we entered his authority willingly. Does this make sense to you? And that's why when you, you, you start trying to use Jesus as a tool to keep the devil away that you invited in, it doesn't work. Okay, How we live our lives is directly correlated to our ability to have spiritual warfare. 
I know in some circumstances and situations that people have applied deliverance-based methods and issues to people's lives and seen a degree of freedom because God, the name of Jesus, just works. However, most of those people who don't really want to be free end up going back and being twice the child of hell they were before they got delivered. Why? Because they go back to the lifestyle that was underneath the principality that they were delivered from. And because the devil's a very smart warrior, he's a very smart um, soldier, whenever he gets kicked out one time, the Bible tells us what he does. He goes and finds seven stronger than himself, so that way the next time you have to work a little bit harder to get him out. So be careful throwing around deliverance <laughs> to people who don't want it. There's a reason why Paul waited three days before he cast the demon out of the, the young psychic woman who was following him around proclaiming the gospel. Go read that story. It's interesting because she was preaching the gospel of Jesus. Demonic royalty can preach the gospel. Just because someone's teaching proper things does not mean they're living proper life. You with me? A lot of pastors need to repent because they're teaching accurate things, but their lifestyle is out of order. And the church really needs to get back to reading the Word of God. Sadly, um, I found it to be true that a large percentage of Christianity only gets their biblical knowledge from what they hear somebody else talk about from behind the pulpit. I won't ask you because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I have done it in other churches that I was invited before, and I ask how many of you guys have read the Bible cover to cover? And very few hands are ever raised. It's very dangerous. To say you love Jesus and not love his word puts you at contradiction with yourself and your own theology. I was all week last week arguing with stubborn, arrogant people taking the word of God out of context, not even understanding the last part of the verse they were quoting, because they couldn't quote it, they could only quote the first part, deceiving themselves. The word of God is the point of all foundational origin of our, our faith. You with me? And I, I'm starting to see in the church of Jesus today a radicalized idea that the rhema of God trumps the logos of God. If you don't know what I mean by that, what I mean simply put is this. The voice you hear in your head that you call God trumps what God already wrote in his word. And that's very dangerous. That's how cults get started. <laughs> and it's so weird that we get called one so many times, yet I'm so bent on standing on the logos of God. Does that make sense to you? Are you with me? So let me go back and talk a little bit about chapter 1, verse 1 through 6, recapping. Paul goes out of his way to start Ephesians by telling the people of God who they are. Keep in mind, as we go through 1 to 6, we're coming to this final point. Paul's end goal was that the church would be at such a place in her life that she would be able to disrupt powers and principalities in any region she set foot in. But there was a process to get to that point. A process that we try to bypass by using spiritual charms and uh, incantations, if you will, of Scripture, just throwing things out called positive confession. 
If our lifestyle does not match what we're preaching out of our mouth, let me tell you something. Powers and principalities do not have to listen to you. You, want, you understand what I'm saying? If you're trying to get a principality to move in the area of, of, of your life or your city or your, your region and you're still under the power of addiction, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to dominate something that's dominating you. Does that make sense? I thought I took this lid off. So Paul's goal is not to have a bunch of people running around trying to take random verses and apply them through their life as it fits. He says, I want you to be a people who understand where you came from, where you were, where you're going, and then how to do life with each other, and then we'll talk about dominating principalities. That's the order of Ephesians. And so many times we elevate our personal relationship with Jesus over the corporate whole, not understanding that when we do that, we're dethroning ourselves biblically from being able to wrestle with powers because it takes a unified body to do so. You can fight individual demons on your own, but principalities cannot be fought in any other way than a unified body and a unified church. There's a difference between the demonic individual demon that's attacking your life called hopelessness or lust or rebellion versus a principality that governs a region. The goal of the church is to dominate principalities in such a way that she begins to change the culture that she's planted in. That she lives such a lifestyle of Jesus Christ not only amongst herself but amongst the community that she's in, that she threatens the overall structure of the principality that owns the city. You cannot do that if you're bowing to the individual demons in your life and then try to corporately come together and kick out the dominating hole. Paul's very specific in Ephesians. It's, it's the practical reality of the church. If we don't live by this book, then the only thing we're going to be doing is revolving ourselves through this cycle of religion, not realizing why it's working because we're outside of the order of God. And then when that happens, you get depressed and you get confused because you think it's not working and you think it doesn't work. And then you think the Bible doesn't work whenever the entire reality is is that we're not looking at the intention of God and the order of Scripture. You with me? Can we all agree that this was written by the Holy Spirit through Paul? Can you all agree that the Holy Spirit does things absolutely beautifully? Can you agree that the Holy Spirit was the empowerment of Jesus Christ in creating this earth? That when God spoke, the Word was Jesus, the Word created, but the Spirit of God is what hovered over everything and brought creation. You with me? So the Spirit of God knows how to create. It knows how to build. And it doesn't put trees before dirt. Does this make sense to you? So when he writes Ephesians and any other book you're reading in the Bible, pay attention to what comes before the chapters that we get to that we are bumper sticker Christianity on. Those verses, Philippians 4, 13, right? Grossly out of context, so many times. Right? I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me. What happens about, have you read chapters 1 through 3? There's an order to God. You with me? Okay, so this is what we're looking at. Paul is now trying to get people to understand 
where they came from. In verses 1 through 6, he starts talking about you were predestined to be a son of God. That God chose you before the foundation of the world and what came before you overpowers what is in you. The story that he wrote out for you before you got here supersedes the mess you made when you're here. That the power of adoption, that the fact that you fell away, secured to yourself a greater security in your inheritance to Jesus Christ than before you fell away. Does that make sense to you? All right, I explained it this way last week. and I'm, I'm paraphrasing an entire sermon just in a very few moments, hopefully, that this is the issue that we're dealing with. Adoption by God is very similar to the American and Hebrew culture. When you're adopted, you can no longer be disinherited. Okay? So an adopted son has a more secure inheritance than a natural-born son. So God took your and our falling away from him and used it to bring us back to him to where we could never fall away in the first place. Only a God who is that wise and powerful can bring such a reality that he takes the screw-up of our life and uses it in such a way that we can never be taken away from him again. This is Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul establishes their, their reality. Why? So we can rejoice in the fact that, hey, I'm a son, and I can never fall away in that sense that God's called. No, because so when you get to the war... And the enemy starts telling you what you're not, you can remind him who you, whose you are. If you don't secure that in your brain, then when you get to that battle, it's going to overtake you. You have to be thoroughly convinced of it before you get there. So many of us can't even handle our identity throughout the week, let alone when we encounter a principality. I know people who have been under this kind of teaching for a long time, and they still haven't actually bought and sold their soul to the reality of, of God possessing them. They still doubt whether he loves them. Why? Because they're looking at their sin instead of his blood that delivers them from their sin. Their reality, their context is their old man Jesus' context for them is their new man, and they haven't believed the distinction between the two yet. They're still wrestling with feeling like they're a son when the Bible never tells you you're gonna. I don't know what my children feel when they, when they realize they're my children, but it's probably not a whole lot. It's just a recognition and an acceptance. Does that make sense to you? That's my dad. End of story. Period. And if we can't walk through our week the same way, not easily being beset by every wind and wave of doctrine that comes along from the enemy, then when we get to the point as a corporate whole to fight a spiritual principality over our city, we're going to have a bunch of divided individuals who don't even believe who they are, and the principality sees us coming and goes, that's not a threat. They're too focused on their unbelief, their rebellion, their superiority, their arrogance, their pride, their theology, their, you know, their wounds and their pains and their sin. There's no unity there. Therefore, we're not threatened, and we don't have to leave, because by nature, it is our design to rebel against them. Does this make sense? If anybody in here actually thinks your life is just to be a good Christian, raise a good family, and go to heaven, you're sadly mistaken on the intention and the will and the trajectory of God for your life. 
the Bible says that David served the purposes of God for his generation. Do you realize that David's call as an individual was for a corporate whole? Does this make sense to you? That David fulfilled the purposes of God for his generation. Scripturally, it can be proven that generations will also be judged. You know what that means? That in some degrees, yes, you're going to answer for, to God one-on-one, but then in other degrees, you're, we're going to answer to God as a corporate whole. Which means your failure becomes mine if you don't do your job. You ever read the book of Revelation where Jesus addresses the churches? He says, to the churches of the city. Like, never was it supposed to be proclaiming Jesus and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so church and this church over there. It was never supposed to be that. Technically speaking, if Jesus were to come to Harrison, he would say, to the church of Harrison. Hmm, I wonder what letter he'd write. I don't think it would be a good one. You know why? Because poverty and hillbilly politics run this city. Not Jesus. And I don't care who I make mad saying that. Because Jesus is king. And it's your job, not mine, to change it. My job is to equip you. Your job is to change that. You with me? The false mindset that the pastor has to do everything is absolutely demonic. I come here, you come here for me to stimulate you, to encourage you, to teach you, and to correct you so that way when you go out, you are empowered to live a life that threatens the powers of darkness, not subjugates itself to them. If a church walks with God and then dies, and at the end of her life, she's more familiar with unbelief than faith, she accomplished nothing. You, have, you and I have to start looking at what Jesus has said about our life. And that's why Paul starts Ephesians 1 the way he does. There's something greater than yourself backing you. In other words, he says you started before you got here in his mind, in his heart. Your reality predates your current existence, which means you were healed before you were ever hurt. Right? You were accepted before you were ever rejected. So these excuses that we use in modern churchism to stay wounded and to stay on the sidelines and to stay in, uninvolved are simply that. They're just excuses. You might buy them the, 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 the kindness-based culture around you, the gentle-based culture around you that we've come into uh, might buy it, but Jesus will not. We need to change culture one person at a time. Has anybody figured out yet that this tolerance idea hasn't fixed anything? Has anybody figured that out yet? Has anybody walked with Jesus long enough that there are times in your life where he is not very tolerant? to what we've decided. My Bible says he rebukes and chastens those he loves. If you've never been chastened by God, then I wonder if you have have received his love. That word chasten means to to beat, to discipline. (laughs) And then we won't even spank our kids. 
but God will spank you. Stick around long enough. Walk with Jesus long enough, and he will, he will thoroughly rebuke you. And if you won't listen to him personally, guess what? He will send somebody to you to rebuke you, and then you're going to get mad at them, blaming them when it was really him, and you're going to get before God one day, and then God's going to say, remember that? That was me, not him. You were mad at the wrong person. Ooh, that's going to be terrible. How many times God spoke to us through the mouth of somebody else, but we negated his word because we didn't like the vessel in which he sent it to? Because it's easy to, see, when you can't discredit the message, you'll discredit the man who brings it. Because if you can find a speck in my eye, then that gives you the ability to not have to obey the word of the Lord, right? Well, but that's how we feel. This is why there's very little submission in the church today, which is why there's very little power in the church today. Everybody wants to lead, but nobody wants to follow. Ask yourself, when's the last time you've truly submitted to something you disagreed with? That's how, you're de that's how you determine your level of spirituality. Think about it. If, you're already, if, if somebody brings up something to you that you already agree, agree with, is it really submission? So I would pose to you like what my mentor told me, it's not submission until you disagree. Hmm? See, nobody likes it when it's pointed towards you, but you do the same thing to your kids. True or not? How many times do they don't want to obey you and they disagree, but you make them anyway? Right? Is it submission for your children to say, hey, we're going to go to Disneyland, let's go. Yes, sir. <laughs> Is that submission? Yet, we'll make our children do that, but we won't do it when a spiritual authority gets into our life, whether our husbands or our wives, our pastors, our leaders, because we're offended. Why? Because we've elevated the individual relationship we have with Jesus over the corporate expression of the whole, thereby bringing division which does not threaten the principality as a whole. How we live amongst one another determines our ability to affect this. They are not divided. Do you get that? Sometimes the devil is more united than the church of Jesus. Are, are you following what I'm saying? So when we read Ephesians, let's look at the whole story. Let's look at where Paul's going. This arrow being pulled back and released has a mark it's going to hit. All right? Are we good? Now I can begin. Chapter 1, verse 6. This is where we left off last week. God was very kind to us because the Son of God that He dearly loves, right? He was kind to us because the Son loves us, that, and because of that we should praise God. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Why is he talking about this? Because within praise is the elevation of the order and the intention of God. When we praise God for His grace, which is something we don't deserve, but it's also something by we've been influenced, we're elevating what God is doing in His ultimate plan, and we're dethroning what the enemy is trying to do. If you look at the, the Greek word that, that, that grace is there, it says, if you, if, you, if you go down a little bit, it says the divine influence upon the heart with the result being seen in the life. Grace is not a license to sin. It's not something you say, well, we're under grace and not law. No, grace gives you a power to obey. Grace gives you the power. It's an influence upon your heart that's so deep 
that causes your physical body to show the results of the touch you've been given. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. When we praise the grace of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the influence that he's had upon our heart, what we're doing is we're elevating the influence over us in our heart by him and not the influence of the enemy upon us. Do you see how he's getting, all through chapter 1 especially, Paul's trying to get the people and their eyes off of themselves, which is 99% of pastoral counseling, period. You see that? Why? Because he made us accepted in the beloved. Is that the word of God or is it not? Is that true? Then why do you and I fight all week long to believe that that's actually true. Some people spend years trying to just believe that one statement. If we're not believing what's already been said, then how are we going to fight something that's going to challenge what the Word of God says when we get there? When the enemy comes, he doesn't come in. Listen, if you're fighting base element lusts, that's fine. Fight them, beat them, deal with all that. But when you actually start to take out on demonic royalty, it's not going to be with lust and greed and hate and variance and all those types of things. Those demonic principalities will cause you one thing, to question the word of God. The small things we think we're fighting are like the minion demons. <laughs> They're the peons of hell. When the devil showed up to Jesus in Matthew 4, he didn't tempt him with pornography and drug addiction and, and all that type of stuff. That's why people are like, well, I can't beat this. Man, that's the smallest demon on the planet. You can beat it because Jesus already has. The bigger thing is when he uses the word of God against you. It takes a mature person to know which part of the word to apply to their season. It's not about it being just the word. It's about what word is in season for my life. You realize this. When G I've said this, and I've taught this my whole life, but I'll continue to teach it, and I'll bring it up here again. When he was hungry in the wilderness, the devil tempted him with bread. Right? And he, and he gave him scripture. Right? And so Jesus responds back in, with scripture. Right? It's not written. It's, it, we live by the word of God, not by bread. Right? But do you understand the Bible also stated through David that he said, I've never seen the righteous suffer hunger or need for bread? You realize that says that in the Psalms? So Jesus could technically go, well, wait a minute, I'm righteous. There's no one more righteous. And I'm suffering hunger. So, because the word of God says that righteous people shouldn't suffer hunger, maybe I should make these stones into bread. But if Jesus would have done that, do you realize that would have been sin? Why? Because the word of God applied to your life outside of the season can cause you to actually go astray. I go, I don't know if I believe that. If it's your time to die and you're trying to live, you're going to be confused. If it's your time to live and you're trying to die, 
you're going to be confused. This is why the Bible says everything is beautiful in its season. There's a time for everything. Time to tear up, time to pull down. If you're trying to tear people down when it's supposed to be built up and you're using the word of God to do it, what are you doing? If you're trying to build people up when things are supposed to be torn down, what are you doing? So you have to know the state of your flocks, the Bible says. Know those that labor among you. We have to know the seasons and times of the Lord. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and his people for not understanding the seasons and the times. There's times in your life where God will take you through a very difficult season, and if you're trying to bloom when it's winter, you're going to be confused. Does this make sense to you? If God's stripping you of old thought processes and realities, you're in a tearing down season, not a building season. If you're trying to build yourself during that time, you're going to be confused. The Word of God follows the Son of God because the Word of God is the Son of God. And Jesus said, I don't do anything, what? Unless I see my Father do it. Do you realize there was times where he could have stepped out of his season? He could have went and healed Lazarus, but he didn't. Why? Because it wasn't the right thing to do. Is it right to heal? He taught them, go and heal. Did he not? Yes. But did he heal there? No. He raised the dead. There's a difference. Does this make sense to you? There's times where Jesus tells us to bless. Yes or no? Yes. And then he goes out and curses the fig tree. Why? Because the word of God has to operate within the season and the time of the Lord. And we have to be hearing that. And all of us need each other to be able to hear different parts of the body to be able to determine what season we're in as a whole and what season we're in as individuals. This is why isolated Christianity always ends up in chaos or an over-characterized version of a theology where it builds something so big on one, one platform and over underemphasizes the building of something on other, another platform and it looks funny in the end. You've met people like that who get caught up in crazy stuff, crazy stuff, and you're looking at them going, what's wrong with you? Like, that's just weird, man. Have you ever met anybody like that? If you haven't, you probably will someday. So Paul starts his letter to establish these people. You can always tell when you get around a religious spirit because they overemphasize something here and they underemphasize everything else. He's leading in the chapter 6. Right? So it takes, Paul's, it, takes a, it takes one person standing outside of time to change time itself. It takes one person to stand in the reality of God that predated our existence to be able to change the reality that's around them. When you get a revelation of who you are, who you are before you got here, then it helps you stand in your reality once you're here. That God chose me. I'm not perfect. I will never be perfect. You will never be perfect. And I quit trying to chase perfection. I now try to chase obedience. I'm not trying to be comfortable in my own skin and my Christianity anymore. There will always be something about me I don't like. Always. And I've grown comfortable with that. I've grown okay with that. What I'm trying to pursue now is what is he asking me to do right now? He doesn't need me looking at my path. He needs me looking at the light that, down the path that he's, he's sending me down. You with me? When you walk, you don't look like, walk like this. When you drive, you don't drive like this. Does this make sense to you? 
All right, this is why the enemy is trying so hard to get us focused on this life. Because ultimately our life is outside of time. We started before time. We will end outside of time. This little blip in the middle, it's not really reality. <laughs> reality is the hope of glory, the Bible says. Hmm? All right, you with me? All right, so the praise of his glory. Why does the enemy want your mouth? Why did he tell Jesus, fall down and worship me? Because within the praise is the empowerment. So the devil tries to hijack our voice. We do it all the time. There's so much demon-focused garbage in the church. I just, uh, it's like, gosh, why, why do we praise him so much? Well, devil's really attacking me this week. Do you think that there's ever a week that's gone by where God didn't indiscriminately bless you, where you couldn't see it? How about the fact that you didn't get in the car wreck? You realize that one out of seven people are drunk past the, the time of nine o'clock on the road? Every seven cars you pass, statistically speaking, after a certain hour at night, is a drunk driver. Well, the enemy's just attacking me. How about... My father's still protecting me. And I said it I mean, last week. Did we wear those stupid shirts? Not today, Satan. It's like, why, why would you want to put so much focus on what he's doing? Because we're used to praising the enemy. You know how you do that? My husband never, blah, 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 blah. My wife just doesn't... Do, 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 do. My kids are, my, that pastor, he just, da, 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 da. you know what you're doing? You're praising the power of Satan. And he's using your voice to do it. Why does he want to use your voice to do it? Because your voice actually has authority and power. And if he can create disunity in the marriage, it's only a matter of time before he creates disunity in the church. This is why Titus, Paul tells Titus, Titus, mark those that cause division among you and remove them. Why? Because the power of division is way stronger than the power of sin. I'll work with people struggling with sin way longer than I'll work with somebody who's, who's coming in to try to divide. And that's why some of those people don't like me because I've already kicked a few out. Because I have to protect the whole. Because that stuff will get on you. You know what it looks like? Well, I just don't know if I agree with that. Oh, so you want to elevate your individual opinion over the collective word of God. I thought it wasn't submission until we disagreed. <laughs> oh, no, that's for everybody else, Pastor, and that's not for me. I'll only submit if I agree. Okay. So then, congratulations, you've reached your ceiling. You'll never go higher than yourself. Yet you're uncomfortable with where you're at. And you want to change? You, don't, can't, you can't change until your standard's raised. Does this make sense to you? Oh, my goodness. Praise postures warfare. To the praise of the glory of his grace. When's the last time you've praised the glory of his grace? <laughs> it's, it, that grace grabbed you 
in the cesspool that you were in and pulled you out of that to where you are. That's worth praising instead of looking at what's trying to take you back there. The power of your grace in me. I praise it, Father, because it will have its work again. It will pull me out of where I'm at now into where you want me to be. And when I get there, it'll pull me out of there into the next place. Glory to glory, grace to grace. God is king. You see this? Why is Paul doing this? Because he needs an established people that don't have to be convinced once the war starts. If a sergeant has to console his privates on the battlefield, everything in boot camp was a waste. Does this make sense? And that's what we call modern day ministry is people getting into war who aren't ready for it because they don't believe the word of God and they believe the lie and then every pastor is trying to, on the battlefield, they're just spiritual medics trying to plug holes. Well, that's not supposed to be who we are. All right, verse 7. Christ sacrificed his life's blood to set us free. Which means that our sins are now forgiven. Christ did this because God was so kind to us. This is verse 7 and 8. Because God has great wisdom and understanding. Do you realize what it costs God to be able to put you in the position now that he always intended you to be before you got here? See, it was the blood that bridged the gap of time between what God intended to what God manifested. It was the blood of God that brought you from God's intentions to God's actual manifest purpose in your life. It took Christ spilling his blood that God made toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God had a plan and wisdom before the ages of time ever began that his son's blood would be spilled to be able to regain the sons and daughters of God to an established purpose, and he used the wisdom of God to do it. The wisdom he used was the cross of Jesus Christ. How many of you could look at that cross when it was happening if you were one of those 12 disciples and scream out, this is wisdom? (laughs) How many of you, whenever the cross is happening in your life and something's dying right before your eyes, stand up and say, this is wisdom? Why? Because we've trained our ability to see that when things are dying, we're expecting them to what? What? rise but we haven't trained our brains why is it important to get to that reality because when the principality comes he's going to touch something that's meant to die and when he touches it it will die and if you're affectionate towards that thing you're going to be taken down by his touch but if you understand that everything the principality touches is meant to die, and the only thing that can come out of it is that which never can die again, then you will fear no touch of the principality in your life. He can't touch things of of light. He can only touch things he owns. You with me? This is why Jesus said, the prince of this world comes, and he has no place in me. 
The only thing the principality could touch was his human body. And when he lost that human body, did he lose anything? He gained a better one. When you live this way, Paul's trying to show them through wisdom of the cross of Jesus and what God does, that the only thing that the enemy can take from you is that which he owns himself. So is it a loss for him to touch your life? Not if you believe in resurrection. Because you know that who you were before you got here is what you'll be after the war is finished. And that means you can't be touched. And that threatens the powers of darkness. Why? Because you're not afraid of anything he can do. You're not afraid of losing anything. Because it's not yours anyway. You come to the reality where you convince your mind that your money's not yours, your house is not yours, your kids are not yours, your wife is not yours. You absolutely own absolutely nothing except Christ. And you can never lose him. And he will never lose you unless you choose to walk away. So what, 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 what do you have to fear? I, I don't know. But the church is rampant with fear. Is it painful to lose things? It's, it's extremely painful. But is that the end of the story? No. And the ultimate loss of anything would be death. And that's tough. But there's an eternal reality that outweighs that because everybody has to die. Nobody's getting off the planet alive. Unless it's the rapture, whenever that happens, if it happens, how it happens, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't even care. I have people that come to me all the time. What you, it doesn't matter. Get up. He could be coming today. Work like he is. Go to sleep. <laughs> and if you do that every day, one of these days, you'll be right. <laughs> That's the extent of my eschatology. <laughs> wisdom and prudence. What was the wisdom? It's that he allowed us to fall away so we could never fall away again. He uses evil to seat us in a permanent, concrete reality. Do you realize the devil to God is just one giant tool? That's all he is. Without the enemy, he could have never gotten you and I to where we ultimately needed to be. Everybody wants to focus on the power of sin and how it's, oh, sin is destroying my family. And do you realize that that lady that was brought to the feet of Jesus was brought there by the religious spirit and by sin? All you super sloppy spiritual people aren't going to like that because you will think the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will lead them. No, your sin will lead you to the feet of Jesus. So when you see prevalent sin in somebody's life, you can believe that it's going to have a work. It's not your job to change it. It's your job to pray that it brings them to the feet of the cross. So why are you fearing sin when it's actually having its work? You're fearing it because of, the, of how it's affecting your personal life, which is absolutely selfish. Because if something's having a work in somebody and bringing them to the cross, and you're operating out of the side of the season, you're trying to save them before they actually die. You're trying to yank them out of the pig pen when they're still hungry for the slop. Let it have its work. 
The Bible says whatever you find to do, do it with all your might. Because in the grave you're going, there's none of it there. If you want to do evil, go out and do it. I tell people, especially young people, like, if you don't follow and follow Jesus, go to the world. Go. <laughs> Get it out of your system. I just hope and pray you do it before you die or he returns. If he's not worthy for you, if he's, if he, if he's not enough for you, if, if you don't love him enough, then you shouldn't stay anyway. Because staying when you don't love him is just religion. Everybody's trying to hang on to their kids because this and that. No, if, if they don't have a heart for Jesus, let them go. Quit trying to control them and make them be good little kids. I mean, when they're below a certain age, then yeah, you got to do that. But I'm talking about the older ones. The focus of sin is the empowerment of the enemy. I mean, Jesus bore the sin of the world on the cross, did he not? But what are we going to look at? The sin of the world or the blood that's erasing it all? <laughs> we have got to change how we think. Most churches have just nothing more than a sin-focused Christianity. Sunday morning is just about sin, 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 sin. Getting people to repent from sin. In other words, you come to the altar, you go, oh, I'm sorry for my sin. And then you don't teach them who they really are, what predates their sin, the reality of God, the trajectory of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, when they get back into their week, their whole object has become, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Oh, I sinned. They gotta come to the altar again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And then at some point they feel like this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And ask me because I was there one time in my life. When I started actually focusing on Jesus, things really changed. Does this make sense to you? So the blood frees us from the power of the bondage. Of sin, but it also infuses us with life and his power and makes us divine royalty and moves us from slave to friend. Yeah. Verse 7 it was the power of the blood that transformed you from a servant, a slave of sin, to a friend of God. Yeah. So, which is more real, what he did for you or what you continue to do without him? It's really whichever one you believe. Do you know how many times Jesus looked at people and said, be it unto you according to your faith? Yes. That's scary. What if in your situation, Jesus walked up to you and said, be it unto you according to your faith and kept walking? How many of your circumstances would change? Like, man, I just don't know if it's going to happen. Be it unto you according to your faith. Oh, I just don't know why it's happening. Are you with me? Verse 9, this was done by Christ, right? He was having made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Look at that. It's a mystery, the mystery of his will. What's Paul say about the mystery of the gospel? I believe it's in Colossians. What does he say? That it's Christ, what? In us, the hope of glory. The, the mystery of God is is God inside of us. And he says that this mystery has been made known to us. <laughs> but there's also another mystery. The Bible calls the mystery of what? Iniquity. The problem is, is the church is living in the wrong mystery. 
She's trying to unpack the wrong story. According to what? Whose pleasure? Does it say yours there? just want to make sure. Anybody feel the need to highlight and cross out his and put mine there in your Bible? Well, that's sacrilegious. I wouldn't do that. Then why are you doing it with your life? His good pleasure, not mine, his, which he purposed in himself. You with me? Paul's saying Jesus came outside of time to reveal who he is outside of time and then calls us into his reality, which is outside that reality. That mystery is Christ in us. Do you realize Christ is not bound by time? Do you realize that? That's why we can have faith, because faith accesses reality that's outside of time. Why can we do that? Because his spirit is inside of us. Bottom line, you need to remember this. You're not a body. You're a spirit. You need to remind yourself of that every single day. Does this make sense to you? Uh, I'm trying to help you. Trying. The total possession of God and his people. This mystery. What is the mystery? The total possession of God and his people. It's so powerful. Next verse. That in the fullness of all time, gathering everything together at the end, all the time brought together into one moment, that he would gather together in one all things in Christ. That means everything that's ever happened has to have its context in Jesus. Do you get that? Uh, uh, maybe you don't. That means that the upset, disgusted political situation of our current time still has to have its context in Jesus. That means your disrupted spiritual circumstances and chaotic lifestyle will be gathered together at the end of days, all in the context of Jesus. So if it's in the context of Jesus at the end, why isn't it there now? Everything being summed up in Christ. Well, I just don't know because he won't listen. And well, maybe God puts you around people that are like you so he could teach you the lesson. I mean, it's true for my life. Go read Oswald Chambers on September 11th. He says, Be very careful to pay attention to the people that God puts around you because oftentimes that's exactly how he, you treat him. See, we always want to blame everybody else. Listen, if you've got a problem with somebody, that's God showing you, I want to make you more like my son. <laughs> this is your opportunity. This is not your condemnation. This is your opportunity to be made like Jesus. Not to self-condemn them or you or anybody else. Because again, what you're doing, you're putting your focus on sin. You with me? <clears throat> Verse 11. In him also, we have obtained an inheritance. <laughs> uh, what does God own? And we get what from him? So what are we going to inherit? How excited would you be if you knew you had an inheritance from a rich uncle who passed away? Like, man, dude, things are about to change. Why can't we be the same way? 
according to the purpose of God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Is that some things? That's everything except your circumstance, right? Because you're different. And God doesn't love you as much. He just loves everybody else. So it's, that's everybody else. And that verse doesn't apply to you, right? Why do we act that way? You see what Paul's doing. Okay, let's not lose the trajectory. Where is he taking us? To be effective spiritual people in the earth. Not people who are just trying to get through our work week so that we can pay our bills and then somehow survive. You realize that your marriage, if you want it to have a revival, it's right around the corner if you believe it to be so. Especially people who've been married for a long time. You kind of settle into a groove. Is that the perfect will of God for your life? Is that the ultimate will of God for your life? Or you just have made peace with the fact that, you know, I don't like that about them. They don't like that about me. We've just found this middle ground where we don't say anything about it because it just causes a fight. <laughs> or do you actually believe for God? Believe God for your wife and for your spouse. You speak life over them and you speak encouragement over them. You speak things and you begin to step outside your comfort zone and begin to do things for them that are outside of the normal reality. How much unity would that foster in your marriage? But all we want to do is pick at one another. You know why we do that? Because that's what we're doing to ourselves. I've seen it my whole life. How you treat other people is how you treat yourself on the inside. And if you're a very critical person, you're critical of yourself. You just want to admit it. You use your pride to cover it up. with me verse 12 that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory he's talking about the 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 Jewish people right he says he did this so that we Jews could bring honor to him and be the first ones to have hope because of him make verse 13 that Christ also brought you the truth which is the good news of how you can be saved and put your trust and faith in Christ and were given the promise of the Holy Spirit that you belong to God in other words, it says, you've trusted him after you've heard the word of truth, your gospel of salvation, in whom you have believed were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. What Paul's saying here is that you were brought into something that you did not deserve. You were brought into something that was given to the Jewish people, and now this contextualizes the verses previous. That he says he's going to bring everything into one. So in other words, what, God, what Paul's saying here is that this thing's not just about you. It's not just about your personal relationship. It's about the restoration of the Jewish people. It's about the uh, establishment and the communication of the body of Christ coming together. It's about everything being brought back into unity. Why? Because unity affects the principality. Gathering everything sealed by the Holy Spirit. Do you know what a seal does? It locks something to only be opened by one person. Which means if you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, the enemy has no right to open your life unless you rip that open and show it to him. See, the devil has no right to the secrets of your heart, but many times you open your mouth way too much and show him what's in there. The problem with Samson wasn't the fact that he did so much of what he did. God had a purpose for him. The problem was is he told the secrets of his heart to the enemy. And it ruined his power. God overlooked so much of Samson's sin. 
He made a vow to a Lord as a Nazarite, and he broke every vow he made, but God never said anything about any of the vows he broke. Do you realize that in Scripture? The problem came whenever he opened his heart to the wrong person. He opened his heart to the devil instead of to the Father. God is willing to deal with your mistakes and lack of vows and everything else that you've made to him and other people. He'll cover that stuff. You've got to go make things right and everything else. But you know what the more thing he's concerned about is you showing what's in your heart to the, to the enemy, showing your cards to the devil. See, what he's saying here is that you have trusted in this. You don't belong to your past anymore. You don't belong to anything but Christ. Right? Because of this, quit sinning. It's that simple. And if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. It's that simple. It's that simple. Well, I feel bad after I sin. Well, of course. The devil just puked down your throat and it's going to take a minute to digest it. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it's got to pass through the system. Repent, get up, and work it out, and move forward. You guys that used to drink and get drunk and wake up the next morning, you know, that's the same principle spiritually. When you suck on the, on, on the bottle of the devil, you wake up and you feel really bad afterwards. You're forgiven, but you've got to work that stuff out of your life. All right? Verse 14. This Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or the earnest, that word earnest is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of his purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That the, the, what Paul is saying here is that you have a down payment to your inheritance that's coming in heaven, and that down payment is the Holy Spirit. How powerful is the Holy Spirit? Every time you feel his presence, what he's, what he's doing is he's reminding you of the rest of the inheritance you're about to get. Why? Because when you realize that, and you realize his presence, and you realize what you own, not only in this life, but what's to come, you're not threatened by what the powers are trying to take away from you. You're not threatened by it because you have everything. If the Holy Spirit's the down payment, how awesome is the Holy Spirit? A down payment is just a small percentage of the greater whole. Because right now, the only part of God you have access to is what? Wait until you see the Jesus and the Father. <laughs> you think the Holy Spirit's awesome. Why, why is our focus off? Even after messages I preach like this, I'll have meetings with people in the back or, or sitting out here, and it's just like, it's like they'll start talking about things that are going wrong and people, somebody hurt them or what they're struggling with, and I'm like, did you not hear anything I said? <laughs> in the inside, I want to go, just listen. <laughs> but on the outside, I'm like, well, all right, let's. Let's have a meeting. We'll talk about it. Because sometimes they just need to grab their hand and walk them through it. Yeah. With me? Yeah. Verse 15. He says, I heard about your faith in the Lord 
and all your love for the saints. This is why he's addressing this issue, because the Ephesian church was actually showing forth a unity that was going to threaten powers and principalities. So he says, if I see this in you, I need to instruct you on where to go from here because you're about to encroach on something that the devil is really going to hammer you on. And this unity and this love you have for one another is now threatening the powers of darkness over your area. Next verse. Don't, I don't cease to give thanks for you, making mentions of my prayers. Next verse. That the God of our Father, this is what Paul's praying for them, that God and Jesus... The Father of glory would give you the spirit of what? And revelation in the knowledge of him. What was that wisdom? It's the same thing we just talked about. That God has the ability to raise the dead. That he would open your eyes and give you the spirit of wisdom. To understand when these things start happening in your life, you know how to process them when everybody else is being slayed by them. And you can stand up and be a hope and an anchor for people around you because you say, doesn't matter what happens here. The enemy can only touch what's his. And you're not his, and I'm not his. The only thing he can take is our bodies. And the only thing left, we're left with was a new one. Now, if you love your money, then you're going to be in trouble. You with me? And he says, he starts saying, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is our Father. Paul begins in verse 17 to start introducing the family element to the church. Why? Because in chapter 2, it's chock full of it. He's changing his discourse away from where they were, what God intended, what God had planned, their identity, their authority, their reality, their vision, where they're supposed to be, their inheritance, all the things that God's given him in chapter 1. And he starts slowly transitioning into the body of Jesus Christ, talking about the Father of glory, and he's praying for the unity of the church. And and he sees that unity that's demonstrated here, and he begins begins to address it in chapter 2. He says that, that, what's it, what verse we on? 18. That the eyes of your understanding, okay, that word eyes means vision and your understanding, your thoughts. Your vision, what you see, and your thinking would be on Christ in light. It wouldn't be on darkness. It would be enlightened. What is God? God is light. He says, I'm praying that your vision and your mindset would be on what is light. Every time you and I get caught in a funk, it's because you're looking at darkness again. Every time. That you would know what the hope of his calling is. (laughs) His calling means, that word calling means invitation. The word hope, the Bible says, is, is an anchor. Anytime you see the word hope, think anchor to your soul. What's your soul? Your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's the manipulable part of you (laughs) by the enemy. Hope is an anchor to your soul. Why? Because you know his, what? Calling over your life. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints? Did you see that last part? That the riches of God are stored in the saints. That's plural. I know we like to try to impress everybody with our revelations of of individuality, what we get from the Lord. But the riches of the glory of God's inheritance is found in the corporate expression. 
which means <laughs> the whole always trumps the individual. Always. That's the ecclesia. It's the church. That's why Jesus didn't call just one disciple. There was 12 different personalities, all that which clashed with each other, and all had different opinions. <laughs> That's why he said, I'm asking you to love one another, not agree. Right? You with me? Paul begins to pray. Their eyes are open. They're flooded with light, flooded with God. That God in us is greater than what's on the outside of us. Greater is he who's in me, right? The hope of his calling. When was the hope of his calling? Way back there, before you ever got here. You see how he's summing all this up? Verse 19, he says, I want you to know, right? The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power. When Paul says that God's power is exceedingly great, I think he's accurate. Toward who? Us who, you see that. This is why unbelief is so dangerous. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us believe. Why is he talking about the power of God inside us toward us who believe? Why? Because where we're headed, we need power to face the things we're going to face. Next verse. Which worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. This is back again. Paul establishing where we're seated. We're seated with him, right? This power puts Christ above the principalities. This is why we can attack them and beat them because we're seated what? Above them. But if you're seated below them through unbelief and depression and doubt and sin-focused Christianity, they will whoop you every time. He is raised from the dead. Death is not bad. Seated at him in heavenly places. It's so It's so crazy. You're seated next to Jesus at the right hand of the Father. I said, I said one time, you know, we're seated at the right hand of God. And this religious devil said, no, it says we're seated with heavenly places. And I'm like, well, you're an idiot because my Bible says we're seated with him in heavenly places, right? Yes. Well, who's him? What's well, Jesus? Well, where's Jesus seated? The right hand of the Father. So if I'm seated with him, where am I seated? At the right hand of the Father. I'm in the same place he's at. That's where we sit. So if that's where we're at, that's where we wage war from. Which means you need to go into your circumstance realizing you've already beat it, not trying to. When you pray, you pray from a spirit of victory, not from a spirit of victimization. If you're praying from a, from a beggared mentality where you're trying to get God to move in your life, you're going to miss the reality of the authority you actually have. But make sure you're living in that authority before you're praying that authority. Next verse. Far above what? <laughs> Why does he talk about that in chapter 1? Because that's what we talk about in chapter 6. Far above what? All principality, power, might, and dominion. Why? And every name that is named. Not only in this age, but that which is to come. In other words, your victory is so, so secure, it's not over everything that's just here, but everything that's also coming. So why are we walking around so defeated all the time? Why, this is why churches just basically give up on the whole lifestyle issue, and they basically just try to get people saved every week. That's it. Well, we'll just try to get them saved. And then what? Well, I don't know. We'll get them saved again. 
Well, then what? World discipling. What does that mean? I have no idea. Far above principality, power, might, dominion, every name. This is where you're seated. Next verse. And Jesus put everything under his feet, which is his peace. Why? Because when you're in peace, you're not at war. (laughs) Because it's already been finished. And gave to him to be the head over all things the church. If Jesus is the head, then we are the And we are the enforcement of his victory. Do you understand that? It's our job to enforce the victory of the cross in the earth. Not to beg God to fix everything. He put everything under his feet. There's so much more to this I can't get into. We've got to finish chapter 1. Next verse. Which is his body, us, right? The fullness of him who fills all. We are the fullness of him who fills all. That's why it's not just one individual relationship with Jesus. The fullness of the body is Christ in us. That fills everything. Gathering everything into himself. This is why if you don't get up and do your job, you're messing with mine. And if I don't do my part, I'm messing with yours. You're not a pew setter. You're not a defeated victim. If you believe that, then that's going to be a reality. Next verse. Is that it? Do you see what chapter 1's chock full of? Paul goes over and over and over and over trying to hammer into their, their brains who they are, where they're from, what their inheritance is, where their posture is, what their position is, what God's call is for their life, what their inheritance is, their, their, their adoption, their rights, their issues, everything. He's bringing it together. Why? Because you need that to get to chapter 2, which is relationships with people. <laughs> I like being a loner too because you just don't have to deal with it. But it's not the gospel. Amen? Amen. Has this helped you? Please stand. I apologize for going long. Father, we come to you as one body, acknowledging who you are. That you have placed us in positions and postures we haven't believed we actually sit in. And I'm asking for the grace of God, which we praise right now, that's taken us from where we were to where we are, to bring us to where we need to be. That every person in this room right now, Father, would deal with the grace of Jesus, that divine influence upon their heart, and this result being seen in their life, that the next few weeks and months, that the mindset would change, their eyes would be opened, their minds would be opened, and be full of light. That they would see where they're coming from, where they're headed, and what your intentions are. And they would not be victims of circumstance. But that, Father, they would allow the enemy to touch that which is his, which will only bring a life that is yours. We ask that in Jesus' name, believing it to be so. Amen.